Okay, so here I have the director of Seven Directions of Service, Crystal Cavalier. She is the former candidate for the North Carolina 4th Congressional District in the Democratic primary in North Carolina. How are you doing today, Crystal? I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. Yes, yeah. I've always been admirer of your work. I remember last year we met at the Line 3 protest and also you were on last season. And as soon as I heard about the MVP being fast-tracked, I immediately thought of you and Jess Sims and the activism that you all do around keeping fossil fuels in the ground. Not just for purposes of climate change, but also, of course, last time when you were on the show, that... Fossil fuels resource extraction often have a mirror corollary when it comes to driving through Native American land, as does colonialism. And the kind of mirror that there is between the lack of resources that you all have and the exploitation of you all's land without much in the way of any sort of recompense for your individual nations or reservations it's the same as it was hundreds of years ago i would like to start off with that and i definitely want to go into the other work that seven directions does but if you can can you detail for me what was your reaction when you heard that the mvp pipeline was going to be fast-tracked as a part of this so-called climate deal that joe manchin agreed to we um so my first reaction was I could not believe it was happening, right? I could not believe that Joe Manchin had made this dirty side deal and this is going to be attached to the IRA. And then I was on my way to Sundance with my husband. And so we were heading into a spiritual ceremony and we were like, oh my gosh, we have to do something. So we put out a press release. And then after our press release, we went to our spiritual ceremony. And then when we were coming back is when we had to start, I guess you could say drinking from a fire hose because we had to catch up with what we had missed for the last four days and try to understand all the language that was coming out to try to understand what people were doing, what the big green environmental organizations were doing. And it seemed like they were applauding They were just like happy that this bill was going through, but they didn't really understand. And I remember writing back to a couple of big organizations because they would, you know, I'm on their newsletter list and they would send some things out. And I would just be like, do you not understand what this means? This is fast tracking the MVP. So that was my first initial reaction. Yeah. And that's really what bothered me about all this is the Democratic Party was so desperate to pass something. Because they are the ones who agreed. Pramila Jayapal last year in December agreed to decouple the bipartisan infrastructure framework from Build Back Better for conservative House Democrats and Manchin and Cinema, who President Joe Biden had gotten guarantees from in the form of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema that they would vote for Build Back Better regardless. And for some reason, we were all led to believe that just for some reason, they wanted it uncoupled, like we didn't know that they didn't want to vote for Build Back Better anyway. And Build Back Better versus something like the IRA 
the IRA has virtually nothing that Build Back Better did as a $1.9 trillion bill by itself, not to mention the $3.5 trillion that it originally was. And what the IRA has within it are a lot of climate scams, is what a lot of climate organizations are calling it, which is around carbon capture, cementing our reliance on cars in the form of an $80 billion subsidy when it comes to electric cars. Then on top of that, there's the amount of money and the amount of land that's offered over to fossil fuel companies before the United States government is able to fund offshore wind farms. And it's something on the order of 60 million acres a year of land that is traditionally used for water that has to be offered over to these fossil fuel companies before any green energy can be created in, in the form of offshore wind farms. Given that there's this MVP pipeline, I was kind of shocked that it had made its way to the national stage and that Joe Manchin was asking specifically for that to be greenlit because as we discussed, the MVP pipeline really isn't even for United States consumption. And it's fascinating to me that he had that on his mind and that that was the one ask that he had. He voted down child tax credit. He voted down real negotiation of drug prices. I mean, I don't even know how many different other amendments, but the one thing that he wants is for the Mountain Valley Pipeline to actually be approved. It's just so bizarre, and it is such an awful deal that Democratic leadership has struck. And so I think I was also kind of shocked because I, in my mind, for months, I thought the MVP was dead. I thought this was over. <laughs> yeah. Given the amount of hurdles that it's crossed, what is your organization's reaction to this, and how do you all plan to fight back on a state level and on a national level? Our organization, what we're actually doing, so what we have been doing is since the MVP Southgate defeat of the air compressor station about seven months ago in Virginia, we have been continuing this education with community members all around the region, right, because we want black, brown, indigenous, and marginalized communities to understand what these types of environmental degradations are and how they can combat them or pick them out or see them or anything like that, right? So we have been doing continuing education. And then we have been trying to educate the community about the indigenous history of the area because there's a lot of mixed ancestry of people in the community that they didn't even know what was that they had. And I felt that if they were able to be connected to the water or be connected to the land in a more spiritual way, and I'm not talking about like religion, but in a more spiritual way, other than they just wake up and see it or say like, oh, that's just the grass, right? If you could wake up and be like this piece of grass or this water is a relative and you start treating it that way, like it's your auntie or your uncle or your grandmother, then you have more respect for it and you will want to protect it. So that's what we have been trying to do is to try to help people understand. And I know some people are like, oh, that sounds silly or just trying to get people to try to think outside the box. So that's what we were doing in the meantime. But right now we have kind of ramped up and we're partnering with a huge different coalition groups with people versus fossil fuels. 
And we're trying to put together a lobbying day and a rally because what we know is the IRA has already been signed by President Biden. But there's this side deal that has got to be voted on. And we know that the end of the year is coming up for the government. So September 30th, they have to pass the appropriations bill to continually fund the government. Or if not, October 1st will be a shutdown. And so we do not want this side deal to be attached to the continuing resolution because people are not going to vote to not shut the government down, right? They're going to vote to fund it. I mean, it really has to be a good reason for them to shut the government down. And I mean, I've been part of a government shutdown when it happened well, like six or seven years ago. They did a continuing resolution to December. And that was no fun for government workers or people being affected by contractors or everybody. But now I'm in a sacrifice zone and I do not mind the government being shut down because we can't sacrifice people or their health or their livelihoods, or their homes, or the land, or the water for greed, right? And that's basically what Joe Manchin is doing, is sacrificing people for greed. So we're putting together a rally for September the 8th in D.C., and the rally is going to be from 5 to 7, close to Capitol Hill. And that sounds exactly like what we need to be able to press the issue on Congress to pressure them to not verify this deal. And that's exactly what this deal would need. I am curious, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, a lot of people, even who would be listening to this, might not quite understand what the impact of a fossil fuel infrastructure plan like this would mean. And not many people understand, you know, what's the harm in having yet another pipeline out there? It doesn't make much of a difference. What we want to tell people who don't understand about fossil fuels or what the harm is, is, well, number one, fossil fuels emit a huge amount of chemicals in the air. There's a lot of people who have asthma, who have COPD or any other type of lung issues, and people are paying a price. And even though you can't see it, you can feel it, right? We put up air meters to monitor the air because I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I just caught COVID maybe a month and a half ago. And since I've had COVID, my lungs have been severely impacted. Like I usually don't have asthma. Um, I had walking pneumonia about six years ago, but you know, I rarely have asthma problems, but now develop this cough and it, you know, it affects my breathing. And so if I'm feeling this way, my daughter who has asthma or my grandfather who had passed away, he had COPD. You know, can you imagine how people are trying to breathe? The other thing is they are pumping or pulling crude oil or coal or natural gas, which is fracked, out of the ground. And that's because they were formed from fossilized animals and plants, you know, millions of years ago. And it has a high carbon content, right? And so they're able to pull these things out the ground and process them and pull out the things that they can use to turn into gasoline to fuel or diesel to fuel cars or the tractors or coal, what they're able to use to fuel the electricity plants. It's pretty bad. Like, it just pollutes. 
the air and it, you know all coal is dirty again with coal which we see in west virginia underground mining they use a lot of these big machines to cut the coal from the the ground or underground then you have surface mining which mo- removes entire layers of soil and rock and so you know you have all this dust and debris in the air and i mean you know it's put in the ground for a reason right like it like you know like why bother those things like now we know these things are terrible we are an advanced society. Why can't we not focus on cleaner things or things that are renewable? And when I say renewable, not wood pellet plants, because those things are not renewable and they also cause a lot of harm. But there's a lot of things that we could do as a human race to try to help continuing the earth, right? And then when you talk about fossil fuels, you have to know that these burning of fossil fuels contributes to the ozone being burned up. And, you know, when you burn up your ozone, you lose the protections or the natural protections that the earth has from the sun's harmful rays to keep the water from being evaporated or the glaciers from melting. I mean, it causes a whole host of chain reactions. So like when the glaciers melt, it increases the water in the oceans, which increases beach erosion, which creates homes being you know, washed into the sea, land being lost. The water is going to come in inland so people will have their homes lost. And then when you're doing fracking, that creates a lot of earthquakes or shifting of the earth, which then creates earthquakes, loosening up of those gases or petroleum underground moves things around and so that causes problems and I mean it's just a whole bunch of things and then you have to think about all of the radioactive materials that comes from the water that they have to use they have to use clean water to pump into these fracked things that creates a wastewater that cannot be used because that water is laden with heavy metals and, again, radioactive materials. And, you know, that causes cancer, birth defects, neurological damage. And, you know, these things leak into our aquifers. And whether you know it or not, all of the water is linked together. So underground aquifers are linked to streams and tributaries, which are linked to rivers, which are linked to the oceans, right? And so it's a great big chain reaction that's all linked together. It's out, you know, it's like the circle of life. Everything works together in a circle. Wall's approach to these issues is very holistic and looking at the earth in terms of entire systems instead of individual problems. So instead of looking at something like the Mountain Valley Pipeline is strictly in something in terms of CO2 and climate change trapping heat towards the surface, there are also issues when it comes to, as you said, heavy metals making it into the ground, the groundwater, into the crops, into the air, other types of chemicals, things like benzene that are a natural byproduct of most fossil fuels, and especially their burning, also make it out into the air and into the soil. There are quite a few chemicals that are used in LNG in order to extract the material. And of course, that causes all sorts of problems. Um, Places like Oklahoma or Pennsylvania causes earthquakes where people are because of the amount of force that they have to use in order to blast through shale rock. 
And not to mention, you know, just like you stated, there are also other materials that just below the surface, just a few miles below the surface, are not fit to be around human beings. It may not be glowing green, but nevertheless, that kind of material, that kind of water is not supposed to make it back into the water supply. And the problem is, is that not only do we know that there are so many methane leaks around liquefied natural gas, <laughs> sorry about that, uh, liquefied right. natural gas in terms of methane, but also there are significant issues when it comes to actually having them contain this water that they ship out there. There's very little regulation as to what they do with that water. And oftentimes in order to enforce that, court actions have to be taken, especially during COVID, that takes an extraordinary long time. And during that time, the water cycle doesn't wait for court. And those processes are still going on. And imagining that kind of material getting into the local water supply is extremely dangerous. I completely understand your opposition on those grounds. When it comes to the climate science itself, which is something that I'm really concerned about, Climate scientists are telling us that if we want to be able to stay below 2C, let alone 1.5C, we have to go about keeping the fossil fuels, the carbon that's in the ground, in the ground, and go about rapidly switching over to renewable energy. And there is this obstinacy among those who have the power to do something the joe mansions the kirsten cinemas of the world the godheimers of the world who do not want to make that rapid transition to renewable energy now in the case of joe mansion he and his wife intake almost a million dollars a year from fossil fuel companies in particular a coal company his daughter is on the board of an epipen company she is the poster child for why EpiPen prices in the United States have skyrocketed. Mm. And yet the U.S. government is, which is wild to me, is still planning to negotiate these prices with these companies instead of nationalizing production. But that's, <laughs> that's another thing. I'm interested in your take on the Democrats' deal to go about approving Mountain Valley Pipeline so soon and their willingness to pass anything and also the nonprofit sort of industrial complex going along with this so quickly as a victory for the climate without really any sort of reflection or conversation with organizations like yours or people on the ground and more just this adulation of Democrats. Um, so my take on that is one, I will honestly tell you that I think that I'm going to just go with the benefit of the doubt that maybe they're just so busy they they don't know what this ideal is, right? Like they were shocked like I was. Like, I can't believe this Joe Manchin guy just did this bold move because one, he's supposed to be a Democrat and he's supposed to align with these social values of protecting people, making affordable health care, things that align with the Democratic Party. And then two, that's why we have to get people out here to talk to their representatives as they're constituents because they don't know what they don't know and maybe they don't have the time to care and it also goes along with their staffers right so if their staffers are just there to fill a role but they're not there to care for the people 
again, they are there to help prep the representative or the congressperson to understand what's really happening. And so that's why it's important that we are meeting with these staffers and representatives to pull them on our side, to get them to understand that this has real human consequence effects. And, you know, I'm glad to be in some of these meetings with people to just, you know, tell my story, right? Because it's, it goes on storytelling. But I will honestly say that politicians, they have got to start listening to people and everyday problems, you know, like what is happening in your district or what could come into your district, right? And how these projects like gas and oil pipelines are just dangerous, right? And very dangerous. Yeah, like they just need to just stop and think, right? Like, would you want this coming to your grandma's backyard? Or would you want this coming to your backyard? That's why I keep saying like, well, Joe Manchin, you want this MVP so bad? Let them people run it through your backyard, right? Like, would you drink fracked water? Like, here, have a glass of water. Would you drink this? No, you would not. So why do you want to sacrifice other people? And that's that's my thing, right? Like, why are, why are people so greedy that they are ready to kill others for their self, right? Like, you know, when Joe Manchin passes on, he can't take all that money with him. Right. You know, like, what are you doing? Like, stop lining your pockets. And, you know, another thing I'm going to go ahead and tell you, this health insurance mess, like, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, we have Blue Cross and Blue Shield health insurance through Affordable Care Act. That health insurance is just crap. I pay $100 a month for us to have health care insurance. I'm thinking, oh, well, I'm paying $100 a month. I'm going to get this really nice health insurance is going to help pay for pharmaceuticals. No. Um, I should have read the fine print. It only pays like 80% for tier one drugs, but tier two through six, which is what my daughter needs for insulin, only pays 50%. So we've been dealing with the problem of her insulin and insulin is very expensive. Without insurance, it is $2,000 for three months supply. That is nine vials. She uses three vials a month, right? That's that's only a three month supply. So when they were like, oh, your insurance pays 50%, it was like $1,000 that we would have to pay. And I was like, that's ludicrous. I can't. And that's just brand name insulin, right? Thank goodness her doctor wrote a generic. So we were able to get the generic prescription of her insulin. And that was still expensive for six vials it was $200 and that's a generic insulin right? right i don't even know what's the difference between generic and and brand name hopefully it's it's nothing because you know you're playing life or death with people's lives when it comes to insulin and i, I just don't understand why they can't make these medicines affordable right why would they do that and my son you know he has severe allergies and he has to have an epipen and i mean it's crazy how much epipens cost the Manchin family, especially his daughter, is so tied up in the healthcare industry and the fact that we have a healthcare industry instead of a service in the United States is is really something. I'm really sorry to hear that. That's that that's really that, that's terrible. The health insurance that you have isn't effective for what you need it for, even though you're paying for it. And that was a part of the IRA. And Joe Manchin and Democrats 
both championed that section of the bill that Medicare, at the very least, was going to be able to to negotiate drug prices sometime Mm -hmm. in 2026, not today. And there were only going to be about 10 drugs that could be negotiated. And it does seem that that the $35 a month cap when it comes to insulin only applies to Medicare and not the Affordable Care Act. And Republicans were instrumental in killing that. And it's it's really wild to me the kind of sacrifices that Democrats have made in order to be able to say that they've been able to do something because of the amount of pushback that communities on the ground and organizations like yours have been doing. Mm-hmm. And also the amount of pushback that they have gotten in Congress from people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema from the right to not do anything at all. You all want them to do more and to be more community involved. People like Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, Gottheimer, don't want them to do anything at all. It's really disheartening to hear that you all are looking to involve communities and are looking to expand the scope of what these proposals could look like for people and instead you have people like Kirsten Cinema, Joe Manchin, Gottheimer in the house looking to expand the rights of businesses and the subsidies to businesses as much as they possibly can. It's mm-hmm. it's really it's quite frustrating to see. And I can only imagine what it's like to experience. Moving from the Mountain Valley pipeline I wanted to know what inspired your run for Congress in the 4th Congressional District, because it does seem now that there is a candidate that is primed to win as a safe Democratic seat. I'm curious, what sparked your interest to run for the 4th Congressional District in North Carolina? So there's a story with that. So when I first entered the race, I was in a different district. I was in District 7. I mean, what piqued my interest to run for Congress was, one, I wanted to run to make a difference because we have politicians that are in office who can come by and campaign on promises and they really don't do anything. They didn't come back to the district. They hardly met with people and they only took what they wanted to do, right? Like whatever their interests were or their friends So we had already kind of laid out the groundwork of how we were going to do things. But then a lawsuit happened and there was a hold. So we couldn't file because they were redrawing the maps. They were redistricting the maps. And they did this process all the way up until February. And so we really couldn't actively campaign like we were going around federally, you know, because we had filed federally. And we were telling people that, you know, I'm pretty sure we'll probably be put in in four, but we were in District 7 and District 7 was just south of the county. District 4 included Orange County and Durham. But then when they redistricted, it included five more counties and that five counties, they were central in the middle of the state, but they were very rural. And to be honest, it is a very blue seat. It is Congressman David Price's seat. But the governor had already tapped or had already endorsed Valerie Fushi to run in that district. And to me, when you have a governor who's already infiltrating in a race and, you know, not giving the people the chance to vote for who they think 
should, you know, be the best person. There's no way we can compete. And when I was redistricting to district four, it was a heavy race. There were eight or seven other candidates. So it was Nita Alam. It was Richard Watkins, Stephen Valentine, Matt Grooms, Clay Aiken, Ashley Ward, myself, and I think one other person, Valerie Fouché. It's wild that Clay Aiken is running for Congress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the thing was, he, um, I thought he was campaigning mostly from California because he had all these records behind his pictures. And I've only seen him like in, in person events twice. You know, it was a tough race, right? Because you had people who were saying they were climate champions. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you. None of these climate champions helped with the MVP that was coming through. And, and, you know, this is a regional issue, right? Because if the MVP Southgate is built, it's going to go down to the LNG. I feel it's going to go down to the LNG in Lumberton and then be either ported out through Wilmington or sent somewhere else to be extracted out, right, and shipped off. So none of these people had joined the MVP fight, like, on the ground or speaking out or things like that. And it's real funny that this climate bill has come out and there's been crickets from all of these people who were running for office. I don't even think Valerie Fouché has made any comments about the climate deal, right? And how it's it's going to affect, especially the side deal. I did. I put out a tweet yesterday, you know, saying like, okay, you guys, I need to hear from you guys. If you guys were campaigning on you're the climate champion well what are you talking about like do you see this bomb deal that's going to kill people and and turn us into sacrifice zones where's your climate champion speaking points on that and none of them have come out to be like yeah this is terrible or what can we do to help stop this you know let me lend my name or let me come and speak or let me create something right some type of momentum because that's what we need is Everybody, we need all hands on deck because it's more than just Appalachia. This is going to destroy people's homes in the Gulf. It's going to destroy people's homes in Alaska, in Oregon, in the middle of the United States. Like this affects us all. And so it's really a call to arm. Nobody wants to talk about it. Getting back to the reason why I ran is because I want people to be able to know that you can do this. All you have to do is fundraise to get the money to pay for your fee, which was 1% of the salary. So I had to raise $1,740 or $42 to file. And while I didn't raise the amount because the threshold amount to raise money to get press was around $200,000. I only raised 20000 you know, because it was such a, people were so split in who they were going to donate to. A lot of the other Democrats who were running, they didn't meet that threshold either. Only Nita and Valerie Fouché and Clay Aiken were able to meet that money threshold. And, you know, Nita had a lot of backing from the Sunrise Movement. Clay Aiken probably used some of his money and influences in Hollywood and then Valerie Fouché, they, there was a lot of cryptocurrency and dark money that entered into her campaign, you know, over $3 million. There's no way you can compete with $3 million. And I'm like, 
why would you pour $3 million into a race that's already heavily Democrat? Like, that just seems like a waste of money to me. They must have been afraid of some change that was going to happen. And they really wanted to pay people off. And again, I don't have a problem with Valerie, but I had a problem with her voting because she was a very safe Democrat in the General Assembly. She didn't really rock the boat. There is the Haw River that was in her district, the pit town of Pittsburgh. They use the Haw River as their drinking water. And that drinking water, that river is contaminated, right? Like you can't swim in the river or if you swim in it, I mean, you're going to get sick because it's a lot of PFAS and Gen X in the water. Wow. And so, you know, she didn't come up with any legislation in, in the state to help protect the water. And so I'm like, well, if you're not doing anything on a local or state level, how are you going to do things on a national level? Like you're just going to get up there and toe the line and be a status quo. And we don't need that. We already have that. We want change, right? Like we don't want any more safe politicians. And, you know, I was running like um, I wanted to get into office, make change for the people and it didn't, I didn't, I'm not running for a career. It doesn't matter if I don't get reelected because I know I would have gotten in there and made change right. for the people, for the good. So I'm, you know, I'm not trying to be a career politician because there's other things I want to do in life, like farm and have a garden and, you know, spend time with my family. These people are running to get a career, which some, that's something I don't want. Yeah. So much of national politics is based out of this understanding that you're going to have a lifelong career. You're going to be able to not only raise the money and now, especially after Ted Cruz's lawsuit earlier this year, be able to keep the money after you win those races or, or if you decide to, to, to drop out after getting the, the nomination for your mm-hmm. specific party and then to move on to K street to move on to large nonprofits or to the head of corporate boards. I do see here that Valerie Fushi, some of her career experience includes working as an administrator with Chapel Hill Police Department and also yeah. administrative positions within insurance companies. And that's not what a safe blue district needs. And that's exactly right, especially mm-hmm. when you live in a district like that or live so near to a district like that. You want people who are going to represent progressive values in a safe blue right. seat who are going to push the needle, not looking for people who are looking to go along to get along. And, yes. you know, it's unfortunate that you guys were, were outflanked by that. And I understand why you personally ran because looking around at your community, looking around at what you could do for the kind of infrastructure that they were planning to put through your backyard, planning to put through your community, it is devastating to think that there is so little regard given by people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, or even potentially people like Valerie Fushi. You know, we haven't seen her vote on the national level yet, but it is very likely that she is going to, you know, go along with whatever the narrative is or whatever the voting line is on the national stage or whatever the national democratic party really asks her to do. And that's just a function of being a Democrat who's looking for that kind of career. Mm -hmm. And your run, you know, it really interested me because 
and especially in America, where there are these huge thresholds of money that have to be raised just in order to not only qualify to race, uh, to mm-hmm. get on the ballot, but also to get press, to mm-hmm. be able to you know get endorsements from other candidates. It's obscene the amount of money that one has to raise. And I've seen quite a few people who do it in a decent way, who raise the money from unions and from local democratic parties and from nonprofit organizations that are actually doing good work. But so often, especially in the case of Valerie Fushi, there's often just this bomb of money, just this nuclear weapon of money that's just dropped into a race. You mentioned $3 million. Cryptocurrency by definition is anonymous and this idea that somehow that anonymous money is going to make the political system better is isn't true it just isn't i also did want to discuss a little bit of your work before the approval of the mountain valley pipeline when it came to seven directions of service last time that we spoke you all were fighting against nvp and you were looking to push it out of your districts and you were looking to make sure that it did not come to fruition where you lived and it didn't come to fruition at all. And you all were able to actually stop along with Jess Sims. You all were able to rally to stop not only line three, but also the Atlantic coastal pipeline, which would have come Mm -hmm. into my hometown, which is Chesapeake, Virginia and exported out into essentially the Chesapeake Bay. Many communities, especially here, are not going to allow that to happen, <laughs> are not going right. to allow that to happen. And that's always the thing is that these state governments and these federal, and federal governments come out and just like, yeah, oh yeah, that's wonderful. We're definitely going to go ahead and do that. And then immediately communities have to hire these lawyers, have to go into federal court, which is not cheap and nor is it not inconvenient because you have to show up for court and you definitely want to be able to drum up support locally. So if you're in a federal court, most likely the closest place you're going to go to in southeastern United States, North Carolina, Virginia, is D.C. And that or, you know, there are some federal courts out in Richmond. I believe there's one in Charlotte. But there is a huge personal cost in terms of money, but also in terms of kind of price that you pay going against the Democratic line. I'm curious, before the Mountain Valley Pipeline came back into focus. What kind of work was your organization doing? We were focusing on the protection of sacred places. And so so I'll give you an example. Here on the East Coast, we were colonized first, right? So in the terms of American Indian education, most people think that the 1800s and to now is the rise of the American Indian. And that's not true because, you know, we we're here from the, you know, 1400s or when Columbus set foot on Hispaniola. And that started a lot of Indian, American Indian trade, slave trade. And people don't understand that one, we were captured into slavery. Right. We were sold and traded to different uh, kingdoms. So like Spain or Portugal or England or France. We, when the England came here and set foot here in Jamestown, they came here with their thoughts of they were coming for religious reasons, right? 
Now that was not true. They were coming here in the search of land and claiming land in the name of England and claiming land at all costs. And so people tend to think of American Indians here on the side as we're extinct or we've been merged or acculturated. That's what they say. We've been assimilated into mainstream dominance. So therefore our blood is less than, and that's where that blood quantum stuff comes in because it still ties back to the land. And it's a huge problem here in the East coast about if you're too dark or if you're too light, you have to claim one race and eugenics movements came in. So in the 1900s, Walter Pleckler's eugenics movement came in. And so a lot of our people just, you know, went either white or black, right? There was no American Indians. They wanted to assimilate everybody. And with that, we lost all of our spirituality. They came in with Christianity. They, even with the slaves, the captured slaves, they forced them into a religion that was not theirs, made them pick up Christianity, read the Bible. And so we had to pick up this religion in order to survive. Now that we've been assimilated for 400 plus years into this mainstream dominant society, we kind of have lost who we were. And so it's really difficult to get back. And so now we're trying to bring back a protection of these places. So like in North Carolina, there's like Hanging Rock Park or Pilot Mountain or there's Okanichi Mountain. There were a lot of spiritual places that are now state parks that we used to use these as our relationship with the creator, our relationship with nature, things like that, that now we can't even go and pray at, right? Because we get looked at weirdly when we're going there and having our religious services. And so Seven Directions of Service, along with my husband, we have been trying to bring back a protection of these spaces to where American Indians can go and pray or go and use or go and, you know, just be relationship with nature and try to get back to that creator. Because now we're at a time in our life that we can put that crutch down because, you know, we had to pick that crutch up to survive. But now we can pick that, put that crutch down and try to go back. But so many of our people are just so ingrained into the words of that book and not really the actions, right? Or knowing these things because Christianity is a very violent religion, right? you know, killing people if you don't transform to their religion. And, and you have to look at these types of ceremonies that we had, like Sundance, which is, if you look at just the semantics of it, it's very similar to the crucifixion of, of Jesus, right? Like they put him up on a, a tree or, you know, on the cross, right? And they nailed him to it. And that's kind of like Sundance. And he suffered and sacrificed for those many days. And again, very similar, very similar creation stories, very similar spiritual stories. But with the rise of the doctrine of discovery, they wanted to be the one supreme religion. They didn't want to hear that. And so they use that as a way to control people. And now people are totally bought into this mentality of evangelicalism. And I'm not knocking people's religion, but I'm going to tell you what, it takes a person to think, to go outside of what you've been taught, you know, your whole life from your parents, grandparents, to 
see different religions, right? Like I've experienced different types of religion from Judaism to Catholicism to just regular Protestant, Lutheran, Episcopalian, just to understand, like I wanted to know those stories. The same with in Buddhism and even the Hare Krishna religion, because I wanted to know what were their creation stories and how did that happen? That's what we were doing is putting in protections and trying to get some of our history back because they put all of our history stuff into museums and they don't let American Indians have their artifacts. They don't let them have any kind of say. And it's all put into this caverns of these either colleges or museums. And they will quickly say that there were no Indians here. They were all obliterated or put on the trail of tears. And that's simply not true. And it all ties back to um, traditional ecological knowledge. We have ways that we story told or told stories. We have ways that we were kept our knowledge. And, you know, Western science or Western studies just completely ignores it. So I'll give you an example. I was consulted about uh, some artifacts at a site that was here in Graham. And this man found a bow. He found some rocks. He found like a couple of statues. And I sent it to an archaeologist at UNC Chapel Hill who studied that. And he said, oh, those are just rocks. And I'm like, those are more than just rocks, right? Like, you need to go out and look at this. And that is mainly how white people act, right? They think that these piles of rocks are just piles of rocks. And they don't want to look further because one, they don't want to be wrong. And then two, they want to control the narrative. <laughs> and I just, I was just like, you know what? I'm going to just, you know what? Fine. I'm not going to even respond back to that dude because, <laughs> um, you know, just, I mean, it's just crazy. And so those are the things that we're dealing with. And we're trying to change the mindset and, ma- and mentality. But again, it's very patriarchal, misogynistic, right? And it's very white. And when you try to decenter or decolonize that, oh, you get so many people so mad at you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's the thing a lot of people don't understand about colonialism is the difference between religions. When it comes to Christianity, the way that many people interpret Christianity and we the way many people interpret the Bible is that God has given them dominion over the earth, that God is somehow separate from the earth itself and the different forces of nature on the earth, that he's created those, but that he's not necessarily in control of them until it's time to do a miracle or time to intervene. He's not a part of sort of the natural process of the earth. And there's several different parts of, of Genesis and also Exodus and an entire book of rules in Leviticus about how God or Yahweh has given dominion over the earth and over animals to mankind. And oftentimes within right wing movements, people like Michelle Bachman, Sarah Palin, several others within the radical right and in the radical or more like the reactionary right and the Christian right is you will hear them literally state that the reason why we shouldn't be worried about climate change or hunting animal animals to extinction or exploiting natural resources at the expense of people's health like mountain valley pipeline or the Atlantic 
coastal pipeline is that mm-hmm. God has given us dominion over the earth. And therefore, we shouldn't really be worried about any of this. This isn't our concern, and we should continue to press forward. And a lot of it has to do with this understanding that Jesus is coming back any day now, and that we're going to continue to press for this because if the apocalypse comes, Jesus is going to come down and save us. Like that there's so much within the Mm -hmm. Christian religion, particularly within the South, that is just this at any moment, he'll be down and we're doing his work and he's going to come and congratulate us all. And we're going to be raptured up with him and the earth is going to be left to be what it is. And really the spiritual world that you should be looking forward to you should be working toward it's not the one that you're currently in physically but a world that you are hoping is there once you pass on and that Mm -hmm. has serious implications for things like the climate fight or for things like in the case of old school colonialism especially when it comes to enslaving people not many people understand that when the spanish came here when some of the portuguese came here when the english first were making landings not when it came to permanent colonies but the english were making landings here within the 16th century the 1500s and they were along with the spanish involved in that slave trade and it wasn't necessarily racialized in the way that we understand it today but it was along the lines of religion in that they weren't quote unquote Christians. And therefore, mm-hmm. unless they converted in the case of the Spanish to Catholicism or in the case of the English to uh, a, a version of Protestantism known as Anglicanism. Fascinating to me that those people were followed out. So many people, even before Jamestown was even founded in 1607, so mm-hmm. many people were hollowed out from disease and from starvation and from the slave trade as they were taken from the internal parts of places like Alabama, Tennessee, Mississippi, Georgia, mm-hmm. parts of Florida, and just raptured up and taken down to be sold in places like Cuba or the Isle of Hispaniola, where Haiti and Dominican Republic are, parts of Mexico, Central America, especially Brazil, there was a large slave trade there. And that's one Mm -hmm. of the original spots for slave labor before they began to really turn to African being the main mode of of slavery, namely because so much, especially within uh, Spain, Native Americans had been considered a body of people or a portion of people by the Spanish crown that could be converted over to Catholicism. And writ large, they were largely banned from being enslaved after a certain point, in in particular after Columbus had done what he had done. And I'm not going to get into the story of Columbus, but long story short, the, the, the kind of atrocities he carried out were not even appreciated by the Spanish crown or the Cortes, which is essentially a a Congress uh, within Spain. It was considered highly embarrassing. It was considered monstrous, even by Spain standards. It was considered unchristian. And Columbus was actually tried and executed. I bring that up because it's important to understand 
colonialism and how it functions with Christianity. When it comes to Native American religion, so much of their understanding is not this exclusionary way of, if you do not believe what I believe, you are subject to hell and damnation. And if I treat you a certain way, or if I do certain things to you, I'm not going to be judged in the same way, or I'm not going to be judged at all harshly by my God, or there are mm-hmm. consequences for me here. So often the way that Native Americans consider religion is that there are gods and the forces of nature are gods. The integration of people, the integration of those forces and the working of the world is not only what produces a god, but also is subject to that god's whims. It's a sort of interactivity between the two. It's not simply a god has a dominion over the earth. And especially within Native American religions, there isn't just a single deity. It's very often many, many different deities or understandings of those. And the particulars are not as, I don't want to say important, but are not as sectioned off, are not as exclusionary as something Mm -hmm. Christianity has. So I, I really do appreciate you bringing that up because Christianity has a very important impact on colonialism. I wanted to ask I know you mentioned what your plans were for the future and what you plan to do in order to fight back against the Mountain Valley Pipeline after your run within the North Carolina 4th Congressional District. What are your plans in terms of an organization going forward? You know, because NVP, that fight is is going to come to a close one way or another. And Mm -hmm. I I think in this case, I, I don't actually think it's going to pass. I think there are enough people in the House who would be willing to vote something like that down. I I really hope that there is someone within the Senate who's willing to not allow a certain bill to come out of committee in order to, especially if this is an appropriations bill, Um, you know, Bernie Sanders is at the head of the Senate Budget Committee. If Bernie Sanders is the chair of the Senate Budget Committee, there has to be an amount of pressure that activists can apply to someone like him to make sure that it does not come out of committee and onto the floor for a vote the problem Mm -hmm. is is that if you're talking about uh, spending money the house has the ability to create and draft legislation when it comes to spending money that's the house of representatives i'm 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 fascinated what's next for you and your organization outside of just the fight when it comes to mvp what can you expect to be doing you know going into the future so we have a lot of consultations that we are doing. And, and right now we have been working on indigenous history teaching. So what we've been doing is every month we do teachings for people in the community to talk about American Indians in the community, what we're doing in the region. And, you know, we're still here and, and changing the narrative. We've also are working on community bills and just growing our community as well as trying to unify people like different groups of people to where they understand like let's understand what politics is happening let's talk about community and just bringing the community together so we've been doing a lot of events and a lot of um, environmentally focused events so we have some canoe journeys that we're going to be doing where we're going to be paddling along rivers in Virginia probably the Roanoke And maybe in the Hall River, it just really depends. 
we have to plot that out. So we're just basically doing a lot of teaching and, and just trying to continue the education of what people need to understand about the East Coast and how we're still here. I'm really grateful that you're doing the work that you are. I'm grateful that we met that day out on the Line 3 protest. It's been really incredible knowing you. I follow your work closely. I'm, uh, Thank you. Yeah, you may not always feel my presence, but I'm definitely, I'm always grateful to see that you guys are out there doing the work that's important. I'm glad that you all are organizing in communities and also pushing back on the local level, which is unfortunately so often where a lot of the climate leadership is left, which is when it comes Mm -hmm. to local state governments or when it comes to communities or reservations like yours, nations like yours, having to go to court and actually fight these very large companies in what is not simple, you know, regulatory law. It's highly technical. It's very, very old. And especially fighting against that systemic colonialism, that systemic racism that has been there so long that discounts life, Mm -hmm. as you said, as you stated before, that discounts life. And it's, unfortunate because in discounting life they're doing so in favor of temporary profit and just like you said if if joe manchin wants to run that pipeline through his backyard he's more than welcome but yeah the idea that you would sacrifice communities and turn them into exactly as you stated sacrifice zones just in order to be able to make a bit of profit and not many people understand that when it comes to fossil fuel infrastructure these are generally built on 50-year plans, 30-year plans mm-hmm. at the very least. And so a lot of the fossil fuel infrastructure that we have is now coming up for renewal. And these companies are pushing tooth and nail in order to do so, even though they know that that is going to push us past a point in the climate where we cannot recover from, or at the very least that things are going to get much, much worse than mm-hmm. we had predicted or that we would like it to get to for survivability means again this was crystal cavalier she is a former house candidate in the fourth congressional district of north carolina i'm so glad that she was able to sit down with me of course the director of seven directions of service thank you for coming on today crystal thank you so much for having me and and i will be glad to come back on your show anytime thank you thank you